Okay, so you're in Luke uh, chapter 12. Let's start in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, be glad. But God said to him, fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So that's our text, and that concept of being rich toward God is what I want us to explore tonight. What kind of person is someone who's rich toward God? What what does he or she act like, talk like, think like? And, and most importantly, how do we in this room become one of them, right? Well, in order to get there, we need to address what God says to the rich man at the end of Jesus' parable. Fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Apparently, there's a lot at stake here, don't you think? It seems there is a way to live life which will end with a person being called a fool by God. So we should probably pay attention. But before we dive into that, let's just all take a second right here and marvel at the mercy and patience of our gracious king. We have all sinned in ways that are beyond foolish, right? We're no better than the rich man. And yet, what does God do? He comes to earth to draw near to foolish sinners and invites them into a new life with him. And then he preserves all that in a book and just sees to it that we can carry it around like it's nothing. I mean, we are not worthy of being invited into lives that are rich toward God. And yet, that is exactly the offer that's on the table for everyone in here tonight. And so let's not receive that grace from God in vain tonight. Let's let the message he's bringing to us from his word really change us and transform us and speak to us. Okay, so we are not after living lives uh, which God would deem foolish. We're after living lives that Jesus would describe as rich toward God. So let's begin at the beginning and see if we can identify what went wrong with the rich man so that we don't follow in his footsteps. Okay, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So Jesus is approached by a man who is divided against his brother over what his rightful stake in the inheritance is. He is evidently um, dissatisfied with how that situation is panning out. And despite the just saddening heartbreak that can happen when families become enemies over something like an inheritance, he still thinks this is worth pursuing. 
And I should point out that just a few verses earlier, Jesus is teaching, this guy is presumably still right there, and he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So hearing that from Jesus obviously didn't change his mind. Being remembered and valued greatly by God apparently was too small a treasure for him. He was requiring more. And this is not in the text. I'm definitely you know, reading between the lines here. But I almost get the impression that he was just there listening long enough to determine that Jesus was an authority figure. And he wanted to use that authority to twist his brother's arm. And let me just say very clearly that it would be gravely dangerous for any of us here to use God as a means to an end. Friends, God is not a means to an end. And may it be far from us to ever use him as a stepping stone to something we feel is better than him. May he purify our worship until it belongs only to him. Let's keep going. Uh, Verse 14. But he said to him, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Jesus is basically avoiding getting involved in the legal proceedings of this guy's family. He says, That's not what I'm here to do. That's not the kind of judge that I am. You know, but he does use the opportunity to teach something that actually gets to the heart of what's going on here. Let's look at it in verse 15. And he said to them, so now he's bringing everyone in on the conversation, take care and be on your guard against all all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life. That's why this man has brought this up to Jesus. That's what, for him, is at stake here. He doesn't just feel ripped off. He feels like a part of his life itself is slipping through his fingers. And hear me, Jesus is warning us all against believing this. Everyone has something their life is consisting in. And our world very much thinks and lives according to the principle that one's life does consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's being preached to us all the time. Isn't it so easy to think of money as a ticket out of worry and stress into freedom, security, validity, to think that if I only had, uh, you know, that phone or or that vehicle or uh, this many numbers in my paycheck or that bigger house or piece of property, if I only had those things, then, then I would have life, real life, Life, of course, isn't all that it could be without fill in the blank. Friends, that is a mirage. Let me free you from that slavery. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If your life consists in him, there can be no treasure in the universe which will not be yours. So, Next, he begins to tell them the parable. And the parable is meant to be an illustration of what he's just taught them, that that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 16. 
The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Let's stop there for a second. Notice what his question is. What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? But that's not true, right? I mean, he says in the very next verse that he's going to tear down his current barns and build bigger ones. So the issue is not that he has no place to store his crops. And not only that, but he's already rich, right? It doesn't say his land produced plentifully and he became rich. It says the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And so I'm assuming his current barns are probably bigger than the average to begin with. So this question... What shall I do? Is not a crisis of necessity, like where's my next meal coming from? Rather, it's a crisis of, well, I'm already rich, but I'm still not quite satisfied. Maybe this extra bonus will finally allow me to arrive. Here's my chance to truly break through into the good life. But look, If you already have an abundance of something that does not satisfy your soul, more of that thing will not fix your problem. You see, from the very beginning, he's asking the wrong question. What his reaction to the large harvest maybe should have been was something like, wow, God, you have already provided so abundantly for me, and now this, this big harvest? Why me, Lord? Surely I've done nothing to merit your favor in this way. But I am at your service, God. If you have decided to entrust these riches to me, then show me how to spend them on your purposes, on what pleases you. You made the plants grow. They're yours anyway. I want my life to be an expression of your generosity. And so thank you for this amazing opportunity to do that. Brothers and sisters, Let me remind you that we are not on this earth to just take up space for 80 years. You are blessed to be a blessing. You were not born into one of the richest countries on the planet for no purpose. In many ways, God has uniquely set us up to be a vivid, unmistakable picture of his generosity in people's lives and in the world. Are we going to take him up on that? Or are we just going to build bigger barns like this guy so we can try and keep it all? Let's keep going. Verse 18. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Notice the language of possession there. He thinks of them as his goods, his grain, not as God's goods which are entrusted to him. Okay, verse 19. Now here is the really fatal step in this guy's mind and heart. Listen to this. And I will say to my soul, okay, soul You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be glad. These bigger barns with more crops and all that will afford him, those are the things, he believes, which will grant his soul relaxation or peace 
and gladness, like he says. See, he mistakenly thinks that a soul is the kind of thing that runs on earthly goods. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. But that which gives life to a soul is not something you can store in a barn. That's like filling up your car with water instead of gas. It's not combustible. It's not the kind of thing a car engine runs on. And so you can have an endless supply of water and say to your car, car, you have ample goods laid up for many years. (laughs) But you'd be wrong, right? Your, Your car actually wouldn't run at all. It wouldn't be or do what it was created to do if you fill it with water instead of gas. And it's the same with our souls. That word translated as soul there can also mean the seat of the feelings, desires, affections, and aversions. See, his sin wasn't just having stuff. Like I said, having stuff could be a great opportunity for worship through generosity. So this is by no means a sermon glorifying poverty as such. It was that he hoped in the stuff. He put his faith in those possessions as having the power to supply his soul's deepest needs. He trusted those possessions to be worthy objects of his greatest desire, that they would essentially deliver on what he was looking to gain from them, namely peace and gladness for his soul. And look, none of us in here are above this. We are tempted daily by the world around us, by our own remaining corruption, to delight ourselves with lesser goods in place of God. Now, if this is not the story of our culture, I don't know what is. Some of you probably need no convincing that you're susceptible to this. But maybe, for others of you, all of this sounds a little extreme. You know, like, come on. I'm not going through my day consciously rejecting God so that I can cling to earthly goods for as long as I can, you know, or something like that. But of course it's not going to be that obvious. Satan isn't going to try to get, I'm sorry, Satan isn't going to try to get you to believe some blatant, unmistakable lie. If anything, he'd want to keep you attending church, attending community group, maybe even reading the Bible, and all the while just help you to sort of numb out your soul with the things our culture offers us. Let me say it this way. Uh, Later in this same chapter, Jesus says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. And my guess is that Satan would want that verse to sound a little out there to us. Like, yeah, I know that's in the Bible, I believe it, and, uh, you know, I I even resonate with it in some ways. But as far as a day-to-day way of life, it's not, not really on my radar, necessarily. Listen, that is a much subtler, deceitful kind of thing that doesn't steer us off the deep end or something crazy. No, it actually keeps us very firmly, very safely stationed in the shallow end. 
That's what it does. And that's all our enemy needs. So we've talked about what was going on with this guy, how we can identify with him. What does God have to say about it? What's his reaction? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 20. But God said to him, fool, exclamation point. This very night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now why is God calling him a fool? Isn't what the guy did responsible and sensible? It's not like he said, well, I don't have any room for these crops, I guess I'll just throw them away. I mean, he was going to build more space and live off of this for a long time. That's, That's resourceful, right? Here's the problem. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You see, by anyone's standards, if you were to look at this guy, you'd say he had it made. And indeed, in his own mind, he was like, I am set up. Welcome to paradise. But in God's eyes, he was penniless. Why? Because he was filling his car up with water, not gas. He was trying to fill his soul with things that were too small, things that weren't made to fill souls. So even though in life he was used to living under the disguise of abundance, when he met God, the reality of his emptiness was exposed. I mean, this is a theme throughout Jesus' teachings. Think of how he repeatedly says that the last will be first and the first will be last. Think of, how, uh, think of the parable in the, uh, of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, think of when he says, those who desire to be great must become a servant to all. Press this parable along with all of that together, and it becomes pretty clear that God's economy is quite different from ours. And it is so easy to buy into a godless picture of what it means to be rich or what it means to be poor, isn't it? I mean, what do you think would happen if we really believed Jesus when he said it's better to give than to receive? If we actually thought and operated according to the principle that giving things away is a better situation to be in than one of receiving and gaining things? Our lives, our church would change dramatically, would they not? The world would look at us like we're crazy, like we have some kind of secret, undepletable pile of riches somewhere that just makes us freely generous. Oh, wait. We do have that. We do have those money bags that do not grow old, treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, like Jesus said. Your treasure is in God. The world might look at you as a fool if you lived that verse out, but God would declare you rich. One pastor pointed out, Jesus is basically saying, I'm not here to get you things that you think will make your life. I'm here to be your life. And here's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Does the way I spend my resources speak to the surpassing value of Jesus in a way that is unignorable? Or do my habits blend into the world around me which treasures this life more than God? 
Does the way I spend my resources speak to the surpassing value of Jesus in a way that is unignorable? Or do my habits blend into the world around me which treasures this life more than God? If there are no real differentiating characteristics there, or or at least steps being taken in that direction, then let's let God's words in this parable be a warning to us. Fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And it says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So we've talked about laying up treasure for oneself, what that looks like, what the root issues are, how we can fall into it. And now let's focus our attention upon the concept we began with, being rich toward God. And for this next section, I'm going to be jumping around in the Bible a little bit, so don't feel like you need to turn with me. I just ask that you listen carefully and try to take it in, okay? There are two things I want to say with regard to becoming rich toward God or living in a way that is rich toward God. The first is a warning, and the second is an exhortation. And you know what? Before I get into that, let me just say really quickly, please don't check out on me right now if you don't put yourself into the rich category in your own mind. Most of us here wouldn't put ourselves in that category, but even the poorest among us usually have a better quality of life than those who are considered to be poor across the world. Jesus is speaking to all of us here, okay? So, the warning. Be watchful, brothers and sisters. Listen again to what Jesus said up in verse 15. Take care, And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, why might we want to take care and be on guard against all covetousness? Jesus gives this reason here, but let me read you this passage in 1 Timothy 6 that just really drives it home, okay? Listen to this. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Skip down a few verses. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Listen to this. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Same Greek word Jesus used in verse 15. Now, again, I don't want you to get the impression that the New Testament teaches having or making a lot of money is a sinful thing in and of itself. There are examples of uh, rich people who fear God in the Bible, and there are examples of people who are rich and forget God and make themselves into little gods in the Bible. And 
Of course, it's also not as if being middle class or poor is some kind of ticket to heaven by any means. You can be poor and greedy. You can be poor and hate God. But, listen, I would be lying and doing you a disservice if I played down the fact that the New Testament does teach there are dangers real spiritual dangers that just come with being rich. They are a part of the package in this broken world. I mean, why else would Jesus have said it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? That's not something we want to think about. It says, it says the disciples were exceedingly astonished when Jesus said that. They were taken aback too. I'm not pretending like that's easy to hear, but it's there And it's part of the reason for this warning. Be watchful. Examine yourself. We're looking out for something Jesus calls the deceitfulness of riches in Mark chapter 4. Listen to this. He's explaining the parable of the sower and the seeds. And he says, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Riches will lie to you. They lie. They can deceive you into thinking that if you have them, you will have no needs. Your soul is full. You are complete. You have found life real life, not not just the getting by kind of life. It can lull you into thinking that a life with riches or possessions but without God is still a good life. And Jesus says, if you think that way, it will choke his word and prove it to be unfruitful in your life. It will have you chasing after all kinds of things that at the end, will make you say, I've wasted my life. Don't believe it. Because that idol will break your heart and it cannot deliver on its promises. Be watchful. Because, of course, your, your use of money is revealing something to you, right? Later in Luke 12, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we give our money for what we value. So pay attention to that, you know, and see if the Holy Spirit can help you draw any conclusions about what's going on in your soul from that. Because listen, you cannot serve God and money. You must give up one to pursue the other. Following Jesus in this way will cost you something. So I just put it to you straightforwardly. What does taking care and being on guard against this look like for you practically? You know, we've talked here before about God's purpose for the tithe. And I don't know, maybe it's weird for some, for Josh to be up here teaching about tithing. But hey, I don't receive a paycheck from the church. And the membership nominated me to be an elder. So I'm going to speak freely knowing that we're all in this together, okay? Tithe. (laughs) And tithe worshipfully in response to Christ shedding his blood for you. 
starts somewhere, anywhere. Like, there is no shame at all in uh, taking baby steps toward a larger goal. As long as the larger goal is there and the baby steps are there. Listen, this is one of those rubber meets the road kind of things God has built into the life of his people which can help to keep him as our ultimate treasure and prize, not possessions. Okay, so if your use of money reveals what you value, is it revealing that we value the ministry of God's church? So maybe purposefully building that into your life is one of the ways you can take care and be on guard. And that's just one option. You know, that's not necessarily the answer, okay? And what about that little phrase I read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 6 when it said, uh, being ready to share. What does that look like for you practically? Maybe it's setting aside a certain percentage each month that you use to spontaneously meet needs that arise in people's lives around you. You know, you have that set aside. You know, I'm going to give this away as a gift. Holy Spirit, show me what opportunities you have for me this month. Again, that's just one idea. It could look different for every one of us in here. We are given money to supply our needs, yes. To plan for the future, yes. To enjoy as a gift from our heavenly Father, which leads us to worship him, not forget him, yes. And for many of us, God has entrusted an abundance over and above all of that to us. It may not feel that way if Maybe you're living above your means. And by the way, that is something we'd be more than happy to walk with you through, to counsel you through with a lot of grace and patience. Um, If we're here for you, please don't hesitate to reach out if that's you. But hear me on this. That abundance is meant to be used to reveal the existence of another world to the people around us. God's world. God's kingdom. It is given to us so that we can create points of contact between that world and this one. Moments in which heaven and earth touch through acts of generosity that nothing in this world can justify. Only a heart changed by Jesus Christ, only someone with an infinite treasure which will never fail them could give like that. Some of us have the answer to other people's prayers sitting in our bank account. Some of us have the means to make the kingdom of God real to a person who is not following Jesus yet sitting in our bank account. And look, I'm with you. It's just easy to neglect asking the Holy Spirit how he wants us to use those things. And it's also counterintuitive, isn't it? Like I said before, God's economy is upside down, or I should say right side up when compared with ours. His values make a mockery of the values we're used to. Jesus says the way to being filled is through emptying. The way to being rich is by giving. That just doesn't come naturally to us, does it? And that's why we can be thankful That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
There is always, for as long as we live, an invitation to repent and be forgiven by our gracious Father who will undoubtedly show us the way forward. Excuse me. So that's my warning. Be watchful. Heed what Jesus said in verse 15. Now what about my exhortation? It's this. Live like there's a resurrection. And the reason I say this is because what the rich man says in Jesus' parable is pretty similar to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's talking about how if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our, our faith is in vain. Okay, and he says this. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So, yeah, if there's no resurrection for Jesus or for us, then who cares? Suck as much as you can out of what you got while you got it. But of course, that's not the case, is it? There is a resurrection. There is an infinite God to enjoy forever. So let's not sell our souls to stuff here. You see, the more we accumulate and sink our roots down into this world, the more going to be with Jesus won't feel like home at all. We'll be at home here with our stuff. So is the way we're spending our resources cultivating at-homeness with Jesus or is it cultivating at-homeness in the world? When I was preparing... You know, this reminded me of uh, the rich young ruler. Jesus tells him, sell everything, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And it says, he, when he heard that, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, I know that interaction obviously happened before the resurrection, but uh, the principle still works really well with what I'm saying here. Too much of that guy's treasure was bound up in the things money could buy. And for him, it was so much that he didn't just hesitate to obey Jesus. He actually walked away. His possessions had him in chains, people. The cost was too great for him because he put too much of his soul into a bunch of stuff that he had. Now, doesn't that just sound sad and ridiculous when you think about it? The more the treasure of our souls is bound up in our possessions, our lifestyle, etc., the more likely we'll be to seek to preserve those things, even at the cost of others or at the cost of, of following Jesus. If we do not live like there's a resurrection, it will be easier to rationalize hesitating to obey Jesus and second-guessing loving my neighbor as myself when it costs me something. Because we think, look, this is my life. These things make up what is my life. And so, no, I'm not so sure about following Jesus on fill-in-the-blank. But there is no life to be found in things. The rich young ruler actually walked away from the life. And, you know, maybe he had big barns too. Maybe he went back to his 
you know, he went back home to his big barns full of stuff, and he had no life. Empty. Let's live like there's a resurrection, brothers and sisters. Let's put our money at God's disposal for this brief vapor we call life. Spurgeon wrote uh, this sermon called How to Become Fishers of Men. You can Google it and read the whole thing online. It's about evangelism. It's really good. But he has uh, just a couple of paragraphs in there which have made a world of difference for me as I think about money and just all of these issues, and I'd like to share them with you. And, and you know, for some of you, you might just have to bear with me through this, but uh, for others of you, hopefully it'll make something click like it did for me. Here's what he says. Keep close to your Lord, and he will make every step a blessing to you. If God in providence should make you rich, He will allow you to speak to those ignorant and wicked rich who so much abound in this city and are so often the cause of its worst sin. And if the Lord is pleased to let you be very poor, you can go down and talk to those wicked and ignorant poor people who so often are the cause of sin in this city and so greatly need the gospel. The winds of providence will move you to where you can fish for men and women. The wheels of providence are full of eyes and all those eyes will look this way and that to help us be winners of souls. Now that is living like there's a resurrection. Knowing that uh, whatever financial situation the Lord has providentially put you in for your brief stay here on earth, it is for the purpose of allowing you to meet and relate to people you could otherwise not meet and relate to and share the message of God's salvation with them. See, that, that doesn't even make money the main thing. That, that makes people and God's grace the main thing. That's beautiful. What a free way to live life, whether, you, whether you're wealthy or whether you're just scraping by. As one pastor pointed out, things don't last forever. People last forever. So giving your money for the good of people is an investment in eternity. To be living like there's a resurrection with regard to money and possessions is to be investing sacrificially in the interest of others, not just in your own. Think of the reason we love Jesus. We sang that song earlier. He is worthy of our worship and devotion for many reasons, and if nothing else, just because he is who he is, right? Because he is God, because he is creator. But what makes us really love him with affection and desire? What makes us want to give him the worship he deserves? It's all that he gives and has given for us, right? Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus spent his life for us. He poured it out. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. 
He did not come here to be served, but to serve. We love Jesus because he gave and gave and gave until he had nothing left. And because he did it so that we can know God intimately, personally, eternally. And so in the end, to be like Christ, to be his hands and feet, to be rich toward God is all about what you can give, not what you can acquire or keep or store up. Like I said, God's economy is quite different from ours. If you're in here and you are not a follower of Christ, he loves you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you came from, And I just want to tell you as lovingly and as straightforwardly as I can, apart from him, you are poor and empty and you will remain that way for eternity. But even though you have nothing with which to afford his favor and kindness and a presence in your life and mercy, Because of the great love with which he loves you still, he came from heaven to earth for those who are poor and empty. He lived the perfect life of obedience to God you could never live. And he died in your place, the death under the wrath of God you deserved because of your sin. And God raised him from the dead to prove to you he is who he said he is. And he is victorious over anything that would keep you back from God forever, anything that would stand between you and him. And the Bible says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if you'll cry out to him and do that and trust in Jesus as your deliverer out of sin into eternal life with him, ask him to change you from the inside out, he'll do it. And then go from this place and spend the rest of your days making much of him in response to his life-giving love for you. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, listen, let's be bold and uncompromising in not letting the deceitfulness of riches gain ground in each other's lives. You hear me? Let's do this thing together. I want to close by uh, reading you something from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. He writes, Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, 
everything else thrown in. Let's stand together as I pray for us. Our Father in heaven, you are great and greatly to be praised. Thank you, Jesus, that you were made to be ultimately poor and destitute on the cross so that we who had nothing could become rich toward God. Lord, how could we ever be the recipients of such grace and then keep back something like our money from you or from other people? But we do, Lord. We confess to filling our souls with things. We confess that sometimes we just want to keep our lifestyles more than following you. Help us to really feel and grasp the foolishness of that. Holy Spirit, teach us to not think of money as something to be selfishly stored up, but as something to invest, to to spend and give away in your name. Let the extravagance of our giving match the extravagance of your giving, Lord Jesus. Help us live like you did, storing up treasures in heaven, our true home, with money bags that don't grow old. And God, Keep us from making excuses when it comes to following you in this area. I know how easy it is to to make excuses and rationalize things in ways that seem innocent. And then five or ten years fly by, you know. Remind us, Holy Spirit, that all of this is connected to our mission of making disciples. Teach us to spend money in a way that, above all else, helps people know you. Only you can make us into those kind of people. And I ask you to do it and to have your way among us now. In Jesus' strong name, amen. One of our other pastors, uh, Taylor, is going to be here serving communion as a way for you to respond. Uh, These steps are also open for you to come and kneel and pray. Let's just meet with God however uh, we need to right now for these next few moments. And then we'll be sent back out into a world uh, that needs to know him and to see and experience his generosity.